0: Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into March's top 10 movies in today's episode. We read the wind and the sky when the sun is high. We sail the length of the sea on the ocean breeze. At night, we I really liked this doing it in, uh, for February, so bringing it back. Top ten movies that I saw for the first time in March, and there is kind of like last month. There's only one movie that's come out uh, this decade, actually. Uh, although I don't, I don't remember. There might have been more than one last month, but it, it was very small. You know, the ratio of like new to old stuff was was pretty low. Um, but, uh, that's, that's okay. You know, that's, we're not here to find new movies that are out to see. Uh, I think this is more for old stuff, in my opinion. And there's plenty of old stuff in this month's list. Uh, A couple of movies I just want to shout out to uh, as an honorable mention. There is One of them is a short film. I think you can find it on YouTube or Vimeo or something. It's called Pitch Black Heist, and it stars Michael Fassbender and the guy who plays Davos on Game of Thrones. It's only about 12 minutes long. I really enjoyed it. It's super fun. Uh, These two guys are tasked with cracking a safe, except they have to do it in pitch black darkness. And so you get like these montages of them with their eyes closed in, an, in a lit room, like practicing, using the layout of the room and like running into stuff. And it's all, it's, there's a lot of humor to it. And uh, it, it, when you actually get to the safe cracking segment, it's, it's really fun. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of, it was a lot of good, a lot of good stuff. Um, oh, and that should be. Animated and foreign. Um, Let's see. That's Love, Simon. I I did an episode for Love, Simon. But I just want to reiterate that I really enjoyed it. I I didn't rate it the highest. But I I think it's definitely worth a look. And... I don't know. Those are the big ones I guess I wanted to to touch on. This month, I watched over 200 movies. And... All of them were brand new. There was not a single rewatch this month. So, you know, none of that stuff like last month where I had War for Planet of the Apes and Dunkirk and things like that getting in the way or Get Out, I think. So, that's good. These are the actual top 10 movies I saw last month. Um, uh, Baseline, bar none. So, without any further ado... Let's jump in to the top 10 movies I saw for the first time in March. Coming in at number 10 is a 1958 film directed by Akira Kurosawa. It stars the legendary Toshiro Mifune, as well as Takashi Shimura, Minoru Chiaki, Misa Uhara, Kamatari Fujiwara, Susumu Fujita, and Aiko Miyoshi, among many, many others. Uh, And that is The Hidden Fortress. The Hidden Fortress, I watched this on the 26th of March. It's about two hours and 20 minutes long. And my brief summary is two peasants stumble on a man and woman hiding from a tribal conflict. Hidden Fortress is perhaps the film most known for its influence on Star Wars, uh, because the principal characters in the movie are the two peasants, that's who the story is told from as a vantage point, and they are the analogous um, representations of C-3PO and R2-D2, Princess, Han Solo, Toshiro Mifune's character, Is analogous to Han Solo, and then you have Princess Leia. A lot of comparisons, a lot of connections to be made. The movie gets a lot of its, I don't know, prestige reputation from that, which is a shame. Uh, The movie came out like twenty years before Star Wars, and it's perfectly good in its own right without having to, you know, rely on that connection. For people to even just see it, let alone for it to be considered quality, uh, you know, Mafune is great in the movie, and just the the bumbling peasants are are great too. They're they're hilarious. This is probably the funniest uh, Kurosawa movie I've seen, and you know, most of his movies have are laced with a little bit of humor in them, but this one feels like. Comedy is just—it's—it's it's so close to being considered a comedy. I—I I think it is. I think I do have it counted as a comedy in its genre. Actually, I think it barely makes that mark. Yes, I do. And I don't expect to see a lot of uh, Kurosawa comedies, but I'm—I'm I'm pleased that I saw this one. I think it's—it's it's more than he's more than capable. You know, it's Kurosawa. I think he's fantastic. He's one of my favorite directors, writers, filmmakers. And this shows that he does have the capacity for not samurai, not like dramatic samurai action movies, um, and sort of head trippy, time bending movies, uh, more along the lines of, say, Rashomon, um, or Seven Samurai and uh, thrown of Blood, and things like that, you know, he is capable of, you know, uh, he has a much wider range than I think people, some people, definitely give him credit for. Uh, further to, more to that point, I, I think, you know, it's always kind of a refreshing and su- uh, surprise to me when I see movies from him that aren't from the Edo period of Japan, you know, back, you know, swords and sandals sort of era. And while this is 100% that era, I I watched one another of his films uh, a day or two ago that wasn't. And it's also great, you know. And you got, like, movies like High and Low that he's done that are incredible but don't involve uh, samurai and things like that. So he's definitely shown me, and I'm sure many, many other people, just how incredible and uh, capable he is. And The Hidden Fortress is one of the one of the through lines of this movie the princess character is convinced to pretend to be mute for much of the film and the the main reason behind that is not to well maybe it was I don't I don't know I don't know what Kurosawa's um misogynistic tendencies were but I don't in the context of the movie it doesn't feel as though the reason for that was to diminish her role. It was a precaution. You know, she was a princess, uh, she was on the run for her life, and by not speaking, you could, you know, by, if she was speaking, you would be able to kind of uh, tell by her dialect who she was and where she was from and things like that. But there's a, mo, <laughs> you know, she's obviously, when this is suggested to her, by uh, Mifune's character, she's obviously very upset by this, she does not want to become a mute, and um, Mifune proceeds to immediately jump into reverse psychology, as he, you know, recalls a time that he was mute, and he had to become mute, and how poorly it went for him, and how, how difficult it was, and uh, she then proceeds to follow through and be mute for a large portion of the movie, successfully. Uh, without any issue, uh, proving that whether or not Mifune was uh, lying about how difficult it was for him, she is more than capable of matching his tenacity and strength and, and willpower. And there's a lot of great moments in this movie that I don't, you know, didn't quite make it over to Star Wars, but that Didn't need to, and I think helped to keep this feeling a far, far, a much more, much fresher than Star Wars, for its time. You know, again, coming out in the '50s as opposed to the '70s is a big difference. Uh, There's a scene in sort of a brothel where men are basically bidding on women, and the princess ends up in it, and convinces Mifune to rescue one of these women, who then kind of just joins their group for a period. There's a fantastic action scene with Mafune riding a horse. I actually, tweeted uh, a picture or two of it, and he's got this insane look on his face. He is charging. He has both, neither of his hands is touching the horse. That he's wielding a huge sword, and it—you it, just see him like charge down, and that looks incredibly difficult to do. Uh, you know that. It's, it's Mafune doing it, like, no strings, no... like It doesn't look like there's strings or anything like that. It's super impressive, uh, just from a physical standpoint. And you can't... I, um, I watched that moment. It's about two-thirds of the way into the movie. And that was just... Just got me so fired up, so excited by what was happening. And he tracks down these two two guys to, to kill that to kill them and it's it's so exciting, so much fun. Uh a lot of great stuff in the Hidden Fortress. It is not my favorite Kurosawa film by quite a bit. And uh I think that it's a lot it's it's long and it it, it takes it, it takes some time to kind of get to the meat of it. Uh, there's a couple of, of side avenues that the film takes that I think kind of just stall the momentum a bit. But when it's on, it's really, really on fire, for sure. And so Hidden Fortress, number 10 for me this month, um, with a rating, I give it a 75. So a perfect three quarters rating there. And it um, it's great. It's, it's really good. It's really good. Check it. You should check it out, especially, first and foremost, if you are a fan of Star Wars, you will 100% recognize the, the, the similarities and comparisons to be drawn there. But just, but I would also say that if you are super familiar with Star Wars, the, try to separate yourself from that as much as you can um, while you're watching it, and then kind of come back to those comparisons later. Because you shouldn't, especially because this is a movie that came out before star wars like don't kind of pigeonhole yourself into the idea that like okay this is just going to be a one-for-one carbon copy kind of a thing give it give it its own chance to kind of breathe and make its own space so that's the hidden fortress from akira kurosawa number nine is a movie from 1986 it is directed by alex cox And It stars the talents of Gary Oldman, Chloe Webb, David Heyman, Debbie Bishop, Andrew Schofield, Xander Berkeley, uh, Perry Benson, Courtney Love. um, I don't see any other names here that I recognize, uh, but a lot of other people in this movie. And uh, I saw it on March 2nd this month, last month, and that is Sid and Nancy. Uh, So Sid and Nancy, my brief summary is a relationship between a punk bassist and his girlfriend. So it follows these, uh, the Sex Pistols, in which Gary Oldman plays Sid Vicious and Chloe Webb plays Nancy Spongeon. And it's it's really uh, It's a very, very fucked up movie. It's laced with drugs. It is incredible. It's a roller coaster ride, ups of ups and downs, as these two characters that seem not only toxic with each other, but just toxic, absolutely, are are so somehow codependent on each other, and they just continue to to like like um uh, like like just like magnets. They they're. they're pulled and pulled and pulled apart. Magnets on a rubber band. Okay, let's make it more complicated for this metaphor. <laughs> they, simile, um, they're like magnets on a rubber band. You pull them, you pull them, pull them apart, and then they snap back together so fast and so hard and with such violent uh, emotion and and tendencies. It's It's not a fun movie in that sense. It is a movie that is Built around uh, Gary Oldman and his incredible performance as Sid Vicious, and he performs a song part part way through the movie. Uh, he performs "My Way" by himself. He sings it, and it's it's. I don't know if I would say it's a good performance, but of of the song, of if if I'm just analyzing Sid Vicious performing the song, I don't think I would say it's good. But as Gary Oldman as Sid Vicious performing this song. It's phenomenal. Uh, it's 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 really something. It's definitely my. I, it was the highlight of the movie in that scene. Uh, you also, but but what what makes the movie stick with you are just the fights between Sid and Nancy, the the just the vitriol and and venomous words and and frustration between the two of them is really really tough to watch but you kind of get it right like this is a peek through the window into a lifestyle that a lot of people will never know or have and you know it's it's always so fascinating to mix something so positive something so reverential like superstardom, you know, as a, as a, as a member of the Sex Pistols who are touring in the U.S., you know, they have reached a level where they are pretty famous and pretty well known, Uh, you know, they've already broken out in England, they have made a name for themselves, but then when you combine that level of success with the absolute pit of despair and, and, um, hole that is, uh, drug addiction, and, and not just, like, smoking a lot of weed, but, like, hard, hard drug addiction, uh, you get this great sort of, sort of pull between the two sides, and, you know, we've, we've seen this in a lot of movies. I don't know if any of them came out before Sid and Nancy. I don't, I'm not sure about that. Maybe they did, uh, but, this one really succeeds in show, showcasing the, the dichotomy between trying to maintain both of these lifestyles and failing, like actually just failing. And anytime they see this glimpse of success, they see this uh, potential um, remedy to their circumstance and their situation, it just it falls absolutely flat on its face. And you you just you can't help but wonder like why do they keep trying it, it you know you you can't fix things if you're not even trying to fix them when something goes wrong all they do is yell at each other and and try to get away from each other and then they end up right back in each other's arms something goes wrong again and the cycle just repeats and it's cyclical and it's it's horrifying it's it's a very toxic relationship that Alex Cox uh, directs brilliantly. Um, he also co-wrote the movie uh, with Abby Wool, and uh, the it's 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 a really rough movie. It comes in like it's not even two hours. It's about a uh, an hour and forty hour and fifty minutes, and it's 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 interesting. It's a movie. You know, I've been. I'm a huge fan of of Gary Oldman. I'm glad he's won an Oscar, even though I don't think this is what it should have been for. And I don't think he had the best performance this year. But uh that being said, his performance in this is Im- Im- incredible. I think far definitely one of his top three or four performances that I've ever seen in Sid and Nancy. And that's not to say that, you know, he he's Above and beyond the rest of the cast, you know, you've also got uh, the rest of the band and their manager and, and Nancy herself, and uh, they they kind of just float in and out of the lives of Sid and Nancy throughout the film. Uh, they and and it, they definitely leave their mark. They're not relegated to the sh- the sidelines entirely. They have impact. They ma- they make the most of those characters in service of the relationship of, of Sid and Nancy, which is is solid and very, very well constructed and written and, and things like that. So it's a good movie. It's a really good movie. I gave it a 76, so just a point above Hidden Fortress. And I really like it. It's, it's a good one. And if you're a fan of Gary Oldman, this is definitely a must-see. Definitely a must-see. So that's number nine, Sid, and Nancy. Number eight is a 1998 film directed by Gary Ross, uh, who is the director of the first Hunger Games movie, and uh, it stars Toby Maguire, Reese Witherspoon, William H. Macy, Joan Allen, Jeff Daniels, Don Knotts, Paul Walker, JT Walsh, uh, Mark Blucas. Jenny Lewis, Jason Burr, Mursa Ribisi, Ribisi, Don Cody. A ton of people in this movie. Uh, and that is Pleasantville. I watched Pleasantville March 10th last month. Uh, it's about just under two hours long. And my summary is, two kids are transported into an old TV show. Fairly straightforward. And far better than its premise has any right to be. And just it kind of wins on the strength of its writing, right? So, this is a movie, I remember watching pieces of it years ago, and for that reason, I kind of put off watching it, because like, oh, I'm just going to rewatch half of a movie to get it, and I have to watch a whole movie to get half of it. Anyway, finally watched it last month, and it's, it's, it's really fascinating, right? So, We've seen a lot of these sort of satirical uh, commentaries on race and um, uh, gender and things like that, and sex. And Pleasantville is a movie that comments on all of them to one degree or another, and does so incredibly successfully. And the the it, it really the the analogy between you know how back in the day, uh, and not even far back in the day, but relatively recently, but back in the day, you had this incredibly awful segregation between, quote, whites and, quote, colored people. And this movie found a way to use the term colored as a derogatory term, but without black people. Uh, And part of that I I really appreciate. I think that's really clever. I think it's really smart uh, when you are transported into a black and white television show. And then people start to turn into colors and, and, you know, start to become not black and white and start to become color TV. And that's a bad thing if by everyone out from considered... uh, as far as everyone else is concerned but at the same time the fact that there aren't like black people in this movie is kind of frustrating uh you know it, it's 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 more of like a 2020 looking back at this years later sort of a sort of a thing you you if you want to like why couldn't you make this same movie but actually have black people in it because if the commentary you're trying to make is saying that racism is bad and uh, just because and and for no other reason than people are just upset with the changing of the status quo and there's no difference between two people and, and this that and the other why, why are you using only white people to tell this? I, I don't know it, it's it's a problem. It's probably the biggest reason why this doesn't score a lot higher, honestly, but the commentary itself is still worth noting, and, uh, the, you know, this came out in 1998. It wasn't even 2000. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not as, as revolutionary as it maybe could have been, but for what it is, it is certainly impressive, and and um, it's 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 a good watch. It's a very fascinating premise that definitely bears fruit. Whether or not it was socially sensitive, uh, it still manages to. I don't know. I guess I wouldn't say wake people up to the problems because I think you either recognize the problem or you don't think that it's a problem, and I think for a lot of situations, not just racism, not just sexism, that's, that's the case, and it sucks, but that's kind of the state of the world, and this, this isn't gonna change anybody's opinion, really, but it's a fantastic look into a different world, and uh, that's very very similar to our own. You get fantastic performances from William H Macy, from Joan Allen, uh, Tobey Maguire, and Reese Witherspoon, Jeff Daniels. They're all really enjoyable in this movie. The the some of the scene, the the more comedic scenes with uh, I think just Toby Maguire like playing basketball and like realizing that no matter how he shoots the ball is gonna end up in the hoop is is funny it's really cute and, and enjoyable to see both him and Reese Witherspoon sort of discover this world and all of its facets and and mechanisms but also realizing that neither of them is quite content with the circumstance uh for one reason or another and how they both kind of rebel against things and and adjust to certain criteria and, and events that take place. You also have the people that are within the world who who live in this place where firemen only save cats from trees. They don't put out fires. Or, uh, for, or, or Jeff Daniels, you know, can't move on to washing the dishes because that's what Tobey Maguire does. And if he doesn't show up, then he can't do anything except clean the countertops, you know, and that's, it's interesting to kind of think of TV shows in that sense, as in, they are so structured, and they are so, uh, they're so rigid in the way that they are presented, that if you were to change them, they would fall apart, and that's, that's interesting, I, I, I you, you don't really think of shows that way. Uh, You know, if, if let's, for example, like the first thing that I could think of was if in Seinfeld, Jerry had no front door to his apartment, how would Kramer enter it? Could he enter it? I don't, I don't know. I I don't know. I don't know what would happen. You know, if, if, I, I mean, and as I'm saying that, I feel like there was an episode where that happened, but maybe not. I don't know. I just think that that's, such a, you know, such an interesting concept to look at. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's Pleasantville. I was impressed by the movie. Like I said, I do think that the social commentary, as great as it is, has its flaws. But the movie itself is very strong. It's very well written and uh, very impressive. Um, It is the second most recent film on my top 10 list at 1998 and at number eight, that's Pleasantville. I give it a 78. So another couple points above uh, Sid and Nancy, but we're still in the 70s. So this is the quote very good range. Moving on to number seven. Uh, This is a movie from 1939 and uh, the second oldest film, On this month's list. Directed by the great Howard Hawks, who has also also directed Bringing Up Baby, His Girl Friday, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Red River, To Have and Have Not, Sergeant York, Rio Bravo, The Big Sleep, uh, the 1932 version of Scarface. A lot of great movies from Howard Hawks. This is the eighth of his films that I've seen. It stars Cary Grant, Gene Arthur, Richard Barthelmas, Rita Hayworth, Thomas Mitchell, Alan Joslin, Sig Ruman, Victor Killen, Killian, uh, and many, many others. And that's Only Angels Have Wings. This is also a top 300 movie for Miran, uh, whose list I'm still going through. Um, and I think there's another, two others uh, on this list are on that, are on his top 300 this month. And, uh, so that's Only Angels Have Wings, which, uh, came, it's about two hours long. I watched it on March 8th, and the summary is, an air freight service hosts a traveler and a discredited aviator. And it's, it's a very, the plot of this movie does not excite me at all. And watching it with, seeing that it has an average rating on on Letterboxd of 4.0, which is incredibly high. Based on the summary, I was just, I was baffled. Really baffled. Beyond that, I'm not a huge fan of Cary Grant. Uh, I think he's pretty much the same character in every movie. I don't think he has any range. And I just, I was not really looking forward to this. And so, I have to be honest, I was pleasantly surprised by the result. And you know, I think the, the movie is very secluded in its scope, you know, it it takes place within a very confined location, and you get a lot of really great special effects with the flights that take place, um, you know, they're a freight service, you get a lot of moments where you see somebody, either, generally they're like a Cary Grant, or, um, Oh man, I forget who it was. Is it Bartholomew? I think who plays the uh, yeah the discredited aviator. The two of them do most of the flying. A couple of other characters get it in get in there too, but they basically just have to fly freight from one place to the other. They go back to this base, uh, but there's a lot of issues with that and the weather. And the vision and the mountains around them and all that kind of stuff and and even the payload itself. Uh, one of the trips they they're required to fly very um, sensitive um, chemicals and it's it's very dangerous. There are there are some are some some bad things. I guess I'll say that happen to not kind of give away everything and all of it's that, which is in and of itself a very compelling side of the story, you have um, Jean Arthur, who shows up at the beginning, she kind of disappears towards the middle of the film, and then kind of returns with a vengeance uh, in the third act, and she is kind of drawn to Cary Grant's character. At the beginning, they sort of have this back and forth thing going on, and He's he's still kind of lost in this old relationship with that he used to have with Rita Hayworth, who does show up in the middle of the movie with now married to uh, Barthelmes's character, who's the the replacement discredited aviator that they they bring in. And this, the tug and, and the um, the tug of war sort of aspect between Hayworth and Arthur and, and Grant, is actually really far better than it has any right to be because it's not it doesn't end up boiled down to just kind of pomp and circumstance it's it's not reduced to being played for its tropes it it doesn't end up with uh just kind of falling into this the trappings of a typical um love triangle sort of situation, you know, I never feel watching it that there's anything that's going to resurface from Hayworth and Grant. Uh, It's more just Grant kind of working through his own um, issues and the walls that he puts up with regards to relationships. And you have Hayworth and Arthur both working at different sides of those problems, trying to not necessarily break them down, but just understand them, in a sense. And that's really a lovely depiction uh, of, of this sort of a person. And I I really, you know, you, you, the climax of the movie, the ultimate moment in this movie, it's a confrontation between Grant and Arthur, where she kind of she meant she's been meaning to leave this this little place for a while now and she keeps kind of stalling and hemming and hawing her way about staying cuz she's interested in Grant but he's not making that taking the step to tell her I don't want you to go, right? And there's this exchange between the two of them towards the end of the movie where we know as the audience what is happening as it is happening. We we've seen the precursors to this moment. We understand what's at play and it's a fantastic. And the only person who isn't fully aware of what's going on is Arthur's character. Jean Arthur's character and she and the moment she realizes it, you know, it's it's like this wave of of happiness and, and joy washes over not just her, even though it 100% does, but like just everyone, you know, it, it's one of those moments where you're not upset that they're withholding information from a character, because it's it's some it, because it's a hundred percent it's exactly what Cary Grant's character would do in that situation, because he can't just come out and say it. He has to. There has to be this sort of rigmarole, this this putting on a show variation of just saying, "I want you to stay," and I, I loved that. I love that. This is. The only mo, the only movie I've really, really enjoyed seeing Cary Grant um, acting in a in a in anything really. It's not the best movie he's been in, and you know he he's he's never going to like detract from the movie because he plays the same character. But I think this is one of the ones, one of the few movies I've seen where I'm like, I'm actually thinking, okay, this is not exactly the same character I saw you in in the other dozen movies I've seen. Um, But on the other hand, I think he is um, entirely uh, outmatched by Jean Arthur throughout the film. She is just on fire, truly mesmerizing and fantastic, and um, really, really the, the light of this movie. And it's a shame she's not in a little bit more of it, to be honest. But yeah, Only Angels Have Wings. I gave this a 78 as well. Uh, it edges out Pleasantville by its Rotten Tomato score, but also, personally, I would put it above Pleasantville uh, if I were making that decision. And so that's number seven, Only Angels Have Wings. Number six is another romantic movie. This one from 1989, directed by Rob Reiner, starring Meg Ryan, Billy Crystal, Carrie Fisher, the late Carrie Fisher, Bruno Curry. Stephen Ford, Lisa Jane Persky, Michelle Nicastro, uh, and others, and that is When Harry Met Sally, dot, dot, dot. Uh, My summary is two people connect throughout the years, very straightforward, very simple, not a lot to get into. I watched this on March 31st, this past month, so the very last day of the month, and it's about an, it's a little more than an hour and a half long, it's not very long, this is one of the movies where it was just kind of a hole in my my watching one of the more definitely one of the more popular movies on Letterboxd that I hadn't seen with over 50,000 logs and views by people on the site Uh, it has a 3.9 average rating and it's iconic uh you know it's um you know it's super famous for the I'll have what she's having moment, which I'm, you know, 100% familiar with, but I'd never seen the movie. And I wasn't sure I wasn't aware of the structure of this. So, I didn't go into this expecting to see this relationship played out from, you know, college to uh adulthood. I thought it was just always adulthood in the movie. And it's not. It's, you know, you see Crystal and Ryan, meet each other, they start out just traveling from Chicago to New York, driving, and then we skip ahead a few years, and then we meet them again, and then we skip ahead another few years, and they meet again, and skip ahead another year or two, and they meet again, and they develop this beautiful friendship, and it's 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 one of those friendships where you have Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby, who are their, each respectively, their closest friends, At at most points in their life, who are constantly must have known for most of this time that, like, okay, Harry and Sally, perfect for each other. Which I thought I found to be very refreshing. It wasn't like the whole movie was spent getting them to be in a relationship. The whole movie was spent understanding the relationship between the two of them. Are they just friends? Are they enemies? Are they? acquaintances? Do they just know each other? Do they care about each other? And we grow with them, and we understand who they are as they understand each other. And that's really great. And, you know, Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby end up together, even though they're set up with each other. So Meg Ryan sets Billy, Phil- Billy Crystal up with Carrie Fisher, and Crystal sets Ryan up with Kirby, and <laughs> in this hilarious moment where Uh, Carrie Fisher pulls Meg Ryan and she's like, look, you know, I would rather be with Bruno Kirby than with Billy Crystal, and, you know, Bruno Kirby does the same thing, and they just kind of, they call a Taxi, and Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby just run at it, and take it by themselves, and they end up married, and it's good, it's a great moment. One of the issues I have with the movie is that Billy Crystal... Poses this this notion early on in the movie that men and women can't be friends, uh, because, as he puts it, the man will always want sex, and uh, whether or not woman cares about that, it just will ruin the friendship. And for much of the movie, that seems to be the tr- the case uh, for the two of them until they really do become good friends, and it. Whether or not, you know, we don't get the entire inner machinations of Billy Crystal's head, but uh, whether or not he is thinking of having sex with Meg Ryan, the two are great friends, Uh, you know, they're candid with each other, they're able to talk very easily, they have no issues talking about sensitive topics, they poke fun at each other, they're supportive with each other, it's a beautiful friendship between the two of them. And my issue is not that ultimately the notion of being friends and how sex can ruin a perfect relationship, uh, not that that kind of bears fruit at the end of the movie, but more so that no one, um, that at no point in this movie is, is it, is, is the argument made or even like presented that the two should just be friends, or or that that friends isn't is is enough, right? Like, I I just I I found the friendship part of this movie to be so beautiful and so brilliant that I wish that is how it would have been. Like, how there aren't enough movies where friendship's enough, and I think it should be. Uh, you know, I I I think that by pigeonholing this movie into being a feel-good-they-end-up-together-at-the-end sort of a thing, it ruins any sort of interesting dialogue about the two of them staying friends and only being friends, and that two people are able to be friends, and they don't... And just because they are opposite gender, which is in and of itself a thing, but just because that they are opposite gender and both heterosexual, at the very least, uh, is, is not good enough, right? Like, I don't know why, I don't know why, you know, any movie that has a man and a woman in it can't just be friends. Like, we've seen a handful of those more recently, but I don't know, this one felt like it could have gone, it could have had such a great, I don't know how you would have ended this movie, if they end up only being friends, and like, they still had the sex, and then they had to reconcile that whole thing. But if the debate is whether or not sex ruins a perfect relationship, uh, this movie says it doesn't only not ruin a perfect relationship, it improves the relationship and makes it romantic and perfect and star-crossed and destined to be together. Whereas I really wish that the answer to that question in the movie would have been uh you know it 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 doesn't have to I think that's a better answer to that question honestly, because how many you know guys or girls watched this movie and said hey if i if if sex just happens to happen with my best friend who's who I'm attracted to, then I'm probably going to end up in a relationship with that person that's perfect and amazing, and we'll spend the rest of our lives together. Uh, I mean, if it's even if that's even if the answer to that question is one person, I think that the movie has given off the wrong impression. Uh, I don't know. That aside, it is brilliantly written by Nora Ephron she, she, the writing in this movie is incredible. Uh, the, the dialogue and the exchanges between Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal. Meg Ryan, who I'm not a super fan of, uh, this is easily my favorite performance that I've ever seen from her. Billy Crystal, I'm a much, I I like him a lot more, and he, he takes to this dialogue and this, the screenplay, uh, with great, like a fish to water. He is in his element in this whole movie. And then, the supporting players of Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby, uh they, they they're good. Uh they don't really stand out a lot to me. And I think I'm not gonna really remember much about them except for the the blind date sequence that I, I mentioned earlier. So Yeah, yeah, it's uh it's definitely it's a it's a great movie. I just, I just take some issue with the, the ending and the interpretations therein. I gave this an 80, so we've crossed the threshold into, quote, great. And uh, it is pretty fantastic uh, in that sense. There are a lot of hilarious moments. It's very funny. And even if I don't like the message that the ending send, sends, I, I was still very pleased to see the two of them end up together. Because in this particular situation, I can understand why that is the outcome. I just wish different circumstances had led to a different result. So that's When Harry Met Sally, my number six in March. Moving on to number five. This is the only movie that came out post-2000. It is also a movie I've already done a review episode before, so I won't take too much time talking about it. Um, It's from 2017, it's directed by Corey Finley, stars Olivia Cook, Anya Taylor-Joy, and and Anton Yelkin, uh, among others, and that is Thoroughbreds. My brief review, or brief summary, is two teenage girls rekindle a friendship as problems mount around them. Uh, If you haven't seen it, it probably, I don't know if it's still in theaters or not, I feel like that's unlikely. It's a pretty polarizing movie. It, uh, the two girls in the movie, Taylor Joy and Cook, are basically plotting to kill a guy. And it's, it's a very dour movie. It's not for everyone. I've heard a lot of people, I've listened to people on other podcasts who've said that they don't like it, that it was, um, it was a little much. It went, it was a little over the top. It kind of glorified murder in a way. I didn't feel that, and even if, and, and whatever extent I think that that emotion comes across, uh, I don't. I don't think that the film is is glorifying killing. I think it's it's just showcasing the the sort of extreme lengths a person is willing to go to better their circumstances and situation. And at the same time, uh, the the sort of resolution of the film indicates that uh, you know this is a movie that is ultimately talking about friendship and dealing with friendship and how committed a friend may or may not be to somebody. And I think that what Olivia Cook does at the end, it's it's a little uh, it's a little phantom thready, uh, if you. If you've seen both of those, you'll get what I'm saying. And I think it, while I think the scene in Phantom Thread is a better scene, I think the emotion behind what happens in Thoroughbreds is far superior. And I think Olivia Cook and Annie Taylor-Joy are great. Really both just great in this movie. I loved it. Uh, it's a shame that it <laughs> qualifies as a 2017 movie, not 2018. But that's, that's just what it is. So, that's Thoroughbreds, I give it an 85, so big gap between Thoroughbreds and When Harry Met Sally, and uh, let's move on, because I've already talked about it, you can go listen to my review of Thoroughbreds, if you would like to hear me talk about that a little more. Moving on to my number 4 movie this month, or this past month, Uh, this is a 1955 film, Uh, it's directed by Henri-Georges Clouseau, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but uh, he directed another movie I watched fairly recently called The Wages of Fear, which is a very well-regarded reno- well and renowned film. Uh, I think this movie is very, very, very good, much better than that. Uh, it stars Simone Signoret, Vera Clouseau, Paul Maurice, Charles Vanel, Jean Brochard, Pierre Lacquet. I hope I'm pronouncing some of those right. Uh, it's French and it's in French, and it is called Diabolique, or Les Diaboliques, I don't know, hopefully Diabolique is how I'm going to pronounce it, and I hope that's right, Diabolique, Diabolique. Uh, I watched it March 31st, so I watched this the same day as I watched When Harry Met Sally, both films ended up on my top 10, so it was a pretty fantastic day, and it's just under two hours long, and my summary is, two women plot to murder the man they're sleeping with. Very straightforward. And it is not a straightforward movie. It has twists and turns. It has an in- incredibly impressive performance from uh, Signoret and Clouseau, who are the women in question, playing Christina and Nicole. And it's a suspense thriller uh, there's a couple of twists at the end um some that I was a fan of others I was not a fan of and it I don't know it, it's it's a really fascinating film on its surface it w- it's it's very straightforward uh the opening sequence is these two women who are both uh who both hate this guy that one is married to, and the other is sleeping with, and they go off on this holiday together, and through their mutual hatred, they have decided to kill the man that they're both with, and they set it up, and, you know, his wife calls her, calls him and tells her, oh, I'm, you know, you got to drive out here. I'm divorcing you or whatever. And so he drives out there and, you know, they drug him and they drown him and all this stuff. And that's like the first half hour. Uh, so they, they accomplish the goal in, in a very quick period of time, only for everything to slowly unravel. Things start happening with the corpse that shouldn't be happening. It disappears. It turns up where it shouldn't. It's, it's, it's not what it's supposed to be. And then you also have, uh, Nicole, who is slowly going insane from all this that's happening. She is losing her mind. Meanwhile, Christina is like perfectly fine and trying to keep her calm head. And meanwhile, they have to return back to the school that they all work at. And it's it's a lot of lot of moving parts, and the 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 middle chunk of this film is incredibly compelling. the the inner workings of the minds of these women uh, as they're wrestling with and trying to come to terms with what took place and what they did and what what the blood that is on their hands is. A fascinating study. And, you know, definitely an element that I was really interested in and really into. I really was on board with that. And so when we get to the end, like the final chunk of the film, final like 20, 25 minutes, and we, you know, we've been introduced to this detective who is uh, following Nicole around and, and trying to ascertain what the truth of the matter is, and, you know, if she really did kill somebody, what happened to the corpse, and why can't they find the corpse, and uh, all these other different elements of it, and what what really transpired, and what, what, at the end of the movie, we sort of retcon a lot of the circumstances that took place, and, you know, r- true motivations are revealed, and um, the outcome is uh, definitely not as the characters uh, expected, and perhaps not even the, the, the viewer. Uh, I was definitely aware of one of the twists that took place, and one of the twists led me to the realization of the other twist before it happened, so, uh, but I, not that they're not done without great care and great technique. Uh, I, I didn't feel as though the twists were there to just kind of subvert your expectations. I think you can definitely see and, and remember going back to the previous circumstances and the previous sequences in the film that the film 100% leads you to these twists that happen. And for a good twist should happen like that. It should be, you should be able to rewatch the movie and say, okay, I see this now. You know, I get why and I I understand that the twist is coming because this is happening and this is happening. Something like a memento where the first time you watch it, all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness, it's being told backwards. But the second time you watch it, you definitely notice that it's being told backwards and you can tell and you can feel it and it makes sense that it's being told backwards. So it's, 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 they're good twists. Uh, with one exception, there's one twist I was not totally on board with. And I won't go into too much detail about that. But I really felt like it was a bit much for the ending. You know, you've already got all this all this sort of stuff coming together at the end. I just felt that the movie tries to pile on a little too much for my own taste. But the film on the whole is, is very great. It is It is absolutely incredible and truly a, a masterful mystery film, uh, akin to, you know, almost, you know, anything that Hitchcock has done, I would put this in the same league and uh, definitely better than a good chunk of Hitchcock movies that I've seen as well. So that's Diabolique. Uh, my number four this month, I gave it an 88, So that high end of the 80 range, a few points above Thoroughbreds. We have three films left, and uh, they are all in the 90s. And so, number three. This is also a top 300 movie for Moran. This is a 1948 film directed by John Huston, starring Humphrey Bogart, Walter Huston, Tim Holt, Bruce Bennett, Barton McLean, Alfonso Bedoya, Arturo Soto Rangel, and Anne Sheridan, and John Huston himself, and others. Lots of others. And uh, the film is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I watched this on March 11th, so I watched this the same day as Thoroughbred's. So that was also a really great day. Uh, And it's a little over two hours long, 126 minutes. And my brief summary is three men discover gold, and it leads to greed. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much the whole plot. So Humphrey Bogart, Walter Houston, and Tim Holt uh, are in various states of down on their luck. And they all join forces to search for gold in, um, I believe, Tampico Mexico. This is back in, I think, the 20s, 30s, 20s. Uh, 1925, and they are searching for gold, and they find it. They are successful. They are g- greatly successful. They find it not just gold, but like a good al- amount of gold. All up, uh, at that, and this is you know, should be a great thing, should be fantastic. And Houston completely steers this thing into a different direction because I think a traditional movie like this would have been the three of them defending their gold from others, right? But what what ends up happening is that they're defending it from each other. You know, Bogey, first and foremost, he is the most paranoid of the three of them. But all three characters end up at some point, you know, absolutely, you know, just questioning and second guessing and, and arguing with each other and, and worrying that, you know, the, the fate of their fortune is at risk and at stake because the guy across, the guy sitting right next to them isn't, isn't telling the truth, isn't, isn't willing to share. And, you know it's it's absolute power corrupts absolutely and you know gold power there's an there's an analogy there but you know when you have so much worth in your hands uh you should be able to just say this is a lot and I have enough but then you actually, you know, you you get yourself into that circumstance and you're like, all I want is more. I I just, all I want is more. I, you know, I personally, I do that with food. (laughs) I think a lot of people probably do that with food. It's like, oh my goodness, this Hershey's bar is amazing. I got one for myself. I got one for you. And then I ate my whole Hershey bar and you haven't even gotten halfway through yours. Why don't you share it with me? Kind of a situation. And uh, that's what happens. And you know Bogart and Holt are the ones they they get most of the screen time in this uh, Walter Houston kind of disappears for pe- stretches of time uh, and the man just the inner dialogue and the the budding of heads between Holt and Bogart is fantastic the the, the 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 cinematography of this movie the the layout the mexican sort of outlands that they, that all this takes place in, you know, they run into bandits, uh, man, B- Bogart interacting with these bandits is, is hilarious, and just, just the, the fact that the two of them, the three of them, kind of, are, you know, trying to think four steps ahead of each other, so you've got one of them thinking, all right, so if, if I, if I let him... If I fall asleep first... He's going to... He's going to take it all and leave. But then... You think... And then that person's thinking... that The other person's thinking the same thing. So... You know... What can I do... They're, so then they're like... The next level is... Well, what can I do... To convince him that I've fallen asleep... So I pretend I'm asleep... And then... He falls And then he thinks that I'm asleep... And then he tries to take it... And then I can get him... But then what if he thinks... That I'm just pretending... And he recognizes it... And what if he falls asleep... or if he's really just pretending... And, and you know you got all these different things happening, all these different ideas bouncing he- around in your head, and it- it's 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 never difficult to follow. I I think you know Houston does a great job of keeping things clear and concise, and uh, the film is just really great and truly remarkable. And I wish you know we don't get enough films like this now. Uh, you know it- it's it's. It's there's there's a lot to it. There's a lot going on. I really enjoyed this one. I think it's incredible. It it broke ninety for me. It got an exact ninety uh, by my rating, uh, which is not enough to put it into my own top three hundred, but it, it's quite close. And anything at ninety or above is 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 impeccably well made. Uh, so. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, I highly recommend it. It's a great Bogart movie, and uh, it's a great John Huston movie. You know, I'm a fan of John Huston. He did The Maltese Falcon, which is awesome. The African Queen is great. Uh, I just watched uh, Pritzy's Honor, which isn't the best, but it's fine. And uh, I'm looking forward to watching... Uh, a lot of others, a lot of his other movies as well. He is a well-respected, well-regarded director, and I'm, I'm very pleased to have seen this. So that's number three this month, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Number two is the oldest film on the list from 1936. Uh, it's directed by Charlie Chaplin, and it stars Charlie Chaplin, Paulette Goddard, Henry Bergman, Tiny Sandford, Chester Conklin, Hank Mann, Stanley Blystone, Al Ernest Garcia, and Richard Alexander, among many others. And that is Modern Times. Modern Times is. I watched this March 13th. It's less than an hour and a half. It's only 87 minutes long. My summary is: industry poses a problem for the tramp. Pretty straightforward. Uh, It's basically. Chaplain as the tramp, trying to make way and and find his way in a in a world that is advanced beyond what he is familiar with. So, and and in the process, uh, also court a young homeless woman that he has grown affection for. This is uh, it has a four point three on Letterboxd. It is one of the top. IMDb Top 250 Movies. Uh, It's currently ranked 38th on IMDb overall. And I think it's just absolutely incredible. Uh, It is, um, I think, if I can find the part, it is my favorite Chaplin movie that I've seen uh, out of the 20 or so that I've seen at this point. And it's it's just truly incredible. The 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 gags, the physical humor, is so great. The emotion that's somehow packed in the middle of it all between the tramp and and Paulette Goddard, who plays the the homeless woman, is is wonderful. The whole scene in the uh, in the in the department store is fantastic. Everything that takes place in the uh, industrial warehouse that he works in, in the beginning, the, the, <laughs> the, um, what is it? Uh, what is it? The, uh, can't think of it. What, a, um, there's this machine that they bring that feeds you. It just feeds you. <laughs> That's great. It's uh, just fantastic. It just feeds you. And it goes wrong, and like just the idea to come up with that is is incredible and phenomenal. I don't know how you think of that, and it's it's really something special. And I was just taken, completely taken by all of it. Uh, <laughs> I, I found it to be incredibly funny, incredibly heartwarming truly, you know, the best version of the tramp, I think, didn't really come about to like the 20s and 30s, where he's not mean-spirited, he just trying to do things, you know, there's a moment where they're working on a conveyor belt, and they have to, there's like five or six different guys on this conveyor belt, and they each have their specific, specific job, and they can't do one without the other, and uh, there's a guy at the end, and he stops the conveyor belt to go chase, and they all go to chase after Chaplin, who avoids them, and then turns the conveyor belt on. So they all have to rush back to the conveyor belt to keep working on it, and keep working on it, keep working on it, and get to a point where they can turn, shut it off again, and they can chase him again. It's, it's just, it's side-splitting, it's gut-busting, it's, it's knee-slapping humor of the highest, highest variety. And it came out 80 years ago, and it's, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's Chaplin at his best, both in front of and behind the camera. Paulette Goddard is great, and all of the, all of the, the rest of the cast have a fantastic and what looks like hilarious time with, with Chaplin, just all of his antics, and, uh, it's it's really something quite quite special, and I, I loved it. I give it a 96, huge gap, biggest gap we've seen so far this month, and it is definitely in my top top 300. Um, it currently ranks as my 71st favorite movie, just between V for Vendetta and Doctor Strange Love, and it's. Man, it's, uh, I don't know if I'll find a better Chaplin movie than that. I've seen many of them. Uh, I have a few left to go. Uh, A few of them, like, more notable ones. I haven't seen The Circus, uh, or Monsieur Verdoux, or A Dog's Life, um, A King in New York. So, I don't know, I still have quite a few left, but I, this one was, was absolutely Amazing. Hands down, my favorite. So that's number two this month. Rated 96. And that is Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. So, if my number two was rated 96, my number one has to be pretty fantastic. And uh, we're going to bookend this this episode with Kurosawa. Because my number one is a Kurosawa film. It is my favorite Kurosawa film. It is from 1962. And it stars Toshiro Mifune, Tatsuyo Nakadai, Keiju Kobayashi, Yuzo Kayama, Takashi Shimura, Kamatari Fujiwara, Masao Shimizu, and many others. Um, He uses a lot of the same people. This is actually a sequel and and or companion piece and uh, is one of my absolute favorite sequels of all time. I think it's my third favorite sequel that I've ever seen. And that is Sanjuro, 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 and if uh, so, it's it's the companions piece slash sequel to *Yojimbo*, uh, in which Toshiro Mifune plays this crafty samurai Ronin who just kind of wanders into the world and finds himself in this predicament that he decides to pitch in and help, but he doesn't really help. He actually uh, just kind of fakes helping. And he's mostly out for himself and furthering his own status. And in both films, he is able to parlay his help into his own gain. So I watched this on the 10th, which is the same day I watched Pleasantville. So three days for six of the 10 movies uh, in my top 10 this month. It's actually pretty, pretty impressive. It's only 96 minutes long. It's one of the shorter Kurosawa films. My brief summary is a crafty samurai helps some young men save a framed man. And uh, for reference, I am a huge fan of Yojimbo, but it is far from my favorite movie. I gave it an 88, uh, which is great, but I've seen better Kurosawa films. Like High and Low, I think, is better. Throne of Blood is better. And then I watched Sanjuro, and, you know... Previously, my the best sequel I'd ever seen was The Dark Knight. Uh, I would say the second best sequel I've seen is before Sunset from Richard Linklater's before Trilogy. This is a solid, solid third uh, in that ranking system. and I have no issues with that whatsoever. It is hilarious. And it's not exactly a comedy. It's basically Mifune, who is perfectly in his element here. And he's he's old. He's this old ronin samurai who meets this group of young kids who just want to free uh, their... I think it's one of their uncles who has been kidnapped and taken in by this evil clan, against against his will, but also like for no reason because he didn't really do anything wrong, and they see him as this perfect samurai, this this epitome of what a, a Ronin should be, and that's not exactly at all what he is. <laughs> He's not that at, at, at for any by any stretch. He is doing things for himself he is constantly confounding them and the people they are up against he convinces the people he is that they are up against that he works with them as well and he plays both sides beautifully sometimes against each other always in his own best interest there is a sequence where he convinces his the ki, the go, the evil people to send a party out um to to flag down such and such a person it gets them to like send a group of like four or five guys out he then follows after them kills them all rushes back convinces the par- the, the these guys that they were killed by a, a, a raiding like a uh, the, the the kid the young guys then kills everyone in the in the building <laughs> and frees hostages gets the hostages to tie him up and convinces uh, Tatsuya Nakadai's character, who returns, uh, that they, that they, that, like, they were invaded, and they, that everyone got killed, and he just kind of laid his, laid down his sword, because he really has no allegiance, and it's, 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 it's brilliant. It's so brilliant. The the sword play is fantastic. Kurosawa created a, a beautiful film here. It's so well-written, and the, the, there's this, even when Sandro is tied up and completely incapable of fighting, he is still not only the smartest man in the room, but he is capable of so much from such a debilitating position. He, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's truly amazing. Uh, it's called Sanjuro because that's what he calls himself. That is his name in this movie. His name in Yojimbo is Yojimbo, which are basically uh, references to things that he just happens to see when someone asks him what his name is, and he's like, "Oh, well, my name is Sanjuro." It. I don't know. I I love this. I think it's it's a brilliant brilliant film. And one of my favorites. I highly recommend Yojimbo and Sanjuro. More, even more than The Hidden Fortress. I think these are both vastly superior films. Uh, it is pretty crazy how many of, of Kurosawa's films are, are just so great. Uh, this is my favorite. I gave this a 97. So for reference, uh, Kurosawa... Uh, this throne of blood is his second. was his previously best movie before this one uh, that i gave a 94 high and low i gave a 92 uh, yojimbo got an 88 like i said then my fifth favorite is ron which has an 81 stray dog which i actually saw um in in April so there's a good chance it's going to be on the April top 10 list so i won't go too into detail but it got an 80. Seven Samurai is actually my seventh favorite Kurosawa movie right now. Uh, I might have to rewatch it at some point, but I was not like head over heels for it. It's very long. Rashimon, The Hidden Fortress, they're just all incredible. He's got an incredible resume. So, number one for me this month uh, is Sanjiro from 1962. I rated it a 97. And that puts it in my top 300 ranked for 39th. So 39th. This is also a top 300 movie from Iran. And I totally understand why. It's it's an incredible movie. It places it just between 12 Angry Men and My Favorite Year. Uh, it's It's remarkable. It's remarkable. So... My top ten this month to run down them one more time: The Hidden Fortress, Sid and Nancy, Pleasantville, Only Angels Have Wings, When Harry Met Sally, Thoroughbreds, Diabolique, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Modern Times, and Sanjuro. Sanjuro. It's it's a gr- it was a good month. It well I guess it really wasn't. Uh, I did some stats on this month on my Twitter uh, on the first of April, a few days ago. Turns out this was a pretty weak month all told. Uh, I watched a ton a ton of awful movies this month, but I watched some fantastic ones that will likely stay in my top 300 for quite some time. So, all in all, I'm pleased with the outcome. And I'm looking forward to April. April is shaping up to be pretty solid so far. It's uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's good. It's good It's good stuff, guys. It's good, good stuff. So, that is my top 10 March movies that I've seen for the first time. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And, uh... Stay tuned. So, uh... Stay tuned for next week. Uh, I'm going to... Let's see. Uh, I'm gonna have something... For A Quiet Place, probably something for Blockers. Uh, both are getting pretty good reviews. Haven't seen Unsane yet. Still gonna try and see that uh, as soon as I can. Maybe today, who knows. Uh, there's also kind of a shakeup here. So last month I did the Marchborn Actors List, and I loved that because it was the first time I was able to, like, overwrite, like, a year ago's version. But I'm also wanted to try something else. This is something I talked about actually with Moran and I like the idea, but I wasn't sure when and how I was going to implement it. I didn't know if I had the time when I with only doing 3 episodes a week and I say only doing 3 episodes a week like that's not enough. But I want to test something out. I don't know if I'll also be doing the Marchborn actress list this month. I will if I need to, but the higher priority is going to be a different variation on that same thing. And that is breaking them down, breaking down the actors by decades. So what that means is uh, 12 months in the year, 12 decades. Uh, so anyone born pre-1900, top 10 of those. Anyone born in the 1900s, 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and then anyone born after 2000. And a top 10 list for these people. And the idea here is um, as far as, as much as month when you were born, what month you were born in, as much as arbitrary as that is, uh, the idea that you break them down by the decade that they were born in is a little less arbitrary because you get to at least pit people against each other who have had the same amount of time, right? So, for example, you would have Cate Blanchett in 1969 and Philip Seymour Hoffman 1967 up against each other. And you could also throw in Helena Bottom Carter, 1966, and Brad Pitt, 1963, and Michael Stuhlbarg, and Ralph Ray Fiennes, and Andy Circus, 1968, 62, 64, etc, etc, etc. So uh, I'm definitely going to do that this month and start that, although it'll start out with the pre-1900s people, not the 60s, and see how that goes and, and do that for some time. Uh, but I, I don't want to, like if I did, I don't know, if I was doing four or five episodes a week, I would easily be able to have time to do the March born or April Aprilborn Actors still. Uh, it'll just depend on how many movies come out that are worth talking about. I know that there are a couple coming out this weekend, but next weekend looks pretty barren uh, prior to, or not next, uh, the, the two weeks after that are kind of barren as we're waiting for Infinity War, so there's a chance that there's going to be a lot of dead dead air to to kind of fill in that time, so that's what I'm looking at. That's the, the forecast going forward right now. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, uh, you want to send in recommendations, lists, movies, anything, whatever, uh, email gmail.com or Twitter at circle of film. You can check out the website, circlefilm.com, for all the past episodes and tons of other information is over there. Or you can support the show, uh, patreon.com slash film. And as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same good night. I know she'll never leave me, even as she fails.